Hey guys, we're so glad you're tuning into the Apex Students Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Apex Students, and we pray that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, I'm a big TV fan. I like to watch TV. I like to watch TV and movies like critically now. Like, um, you know, I watched TV for so many years and you learn what you like and you know, like you understand a story interests me very much. So I've been talking about that a little bit. And um, I notice more things about TV than I used to. There's one thing that happens a lot in movies and TV shows that I'm not a fan of, and that's a happy ending. Now, um, it's not like every happy ending that's upsetting to me, but like sometimes a movie has just like too happy of an ending. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's a little too happy. Um, Like no one lost anything. No one learned anything. Everybody just got what they wanted. Roll credits. Like that's not what I want in the ending of my movie. Like I want someone to go on a journey, whether it's like a literal journey to Mordor or it's a like figurative journey of self-understanding and self-discovery. I want somebody to realize something about themselves. I want them to, I want a main character to die. Like that's often really what I mean here. Um, I want some mayhem to make it feel like we learned, we earned the happy ending. That's just my preference. And I'm not sure I can measure for you how happy of an ending is too happy? <laughs> like how can we, how much does it? How much tragedy is is needed to earn a happy ending? I can't quite do it that way. But just know that if it, if the ending is too happy, I might have some complaints. Um, but we have a happy ending coming our way in the book of Ruth. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series called Ruth, and we're studying the book of Ruth from the Old Testament. And um, every week we've been talking about. A one chapter. Every week has been a chapter of the book of Ruth. This is the fourth week, final week, final chapter for Ruth. Um, every week, though, we've been focusing on one truth, though, like the one overarching through the whole series, one truth, and that is that God takes care of his people. I've said it a million times, always. God takes care of his people, always, every time, um, sometimes in a way that we don't quite understand, sometimes on a timetable that we don't exactly like, but every time God takes care of his people. And we left off last week In chapter three, we're going to pick up today in chapter four. Last week, we left chapter three with Ruth proposing to Boaz in a very culturally confusing way, right? Remember, she like snuck into his tent at night and like made his feet cold and just like went to sleep. And then he woke up eventually. He's like, who is she? And, um, and so like, this is, this is a really confusing thing for us, but in the culture of the time, Boaz understood it was a proposal of marriage. And, um, He was the family redeemer. We did a lot of cultural stuff last week. He was the family redeemer, um, so he agreed to marry her. This was an important role, this family redeemer situation. Uh, It was determined by your lineage, like your family tree, and your family redeemer would be the one to get you out of trouble. In a variety of different ways, the bottom line is that the family redeemer can get you out of trouble. Ruth and Naomi were in trouble. They needed help. So Boaz is amazing, and he agrees to marry Ruth, and this marriage would save Ruth and Naomi from poverty. It would preserve the family line of Malin and Elimelech, who were Ruth and Naomi's widows, or, or you know, for late husbands. Um, and the last obstacle, Boaz is like, let's get married. I'm very excited. I'd love to take care of you guys. And there's one more obstacle in the way, and that's that there's another person in the family tree that's closer, that should be the family redeemer first. Legally, that's how it worked. Um, so Boaz says, let me talk to this guy. I'll take care of it. And, and maybe he'll be the one to take care of you guys. I'm going to make sure you get taken care of either way. So that brings us up to speed. And I've done some recap. And we're going to watch a video that's going to do some more recap for you. Um, but at the, at, after all the recap, this video will set the scene for Ruth 
chapter 4. In chapter 1, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Ruth gleans in the fields of a man named Boaz. He is a righteous man who sees her and gives her additional food and water, and asks her to only work in his fields so that she can be safe and well taken care of. Ruth goes home, tells Naomi of what happened, and Naomi agrees that she should stay in those fields because Boaz is actually a close relative of theirs. So Ruth gleaned in Boaz's crops until the end of the harvest. Naomi and Ruth have a discussion about Ruth getting married again. Naomi suggests that she marry Boaz and tells her to go to him that night and talk to him about it. Ruth does as Naomi says and approaches Boaz after he's done working. She asks him to redeem her family and to marry her. And Boaz responds that there is one other person who should do that. He says, if he does, that is a good thing. If he isn't willing, then I will surely redeem you. Chapter 4 begins with Boaz at the city gates, looking for the man that is to redeem Ruth's family. He finds him and asks him to sit down to talk. Boaz then finds ten elders of the city, asking them to be part of this conversation as witnesses. Boaz turns to the man and explains the situation. Naomi, who has returned from Moab, is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would let you know so you can buy it here in the presence of the elders. If you won't do it, tell me, because I will if you won't. The Redeemer says he will, and Boaz responds, One more thing. The day you buy the land, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow, in order to continue the name of her former husband, Malin. Boaz says here that this Redeemer will have to take Ruth as a wife, and their firstborn son will continue the name of Elimelech and Malin, not his own. This will result in the child receiving the land as an inheritance, rather than this Redeemer's own children. The man realizes this and changes his mind. I cannot redeem it. I would not want to affect my own children's inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. The man removes the sandal as a visual confirmation of the transaction. Boaz turns to the elders and declares, You are witnesses that I have bought the land from Naomi. I received Ruth as my wife to continue the name of her former husband so that his name is not forgotten from his family of his homeland. The elders, along with others who had gathered, say, We are witnesses. They then bless Boaz, declaring, May you be renowned in Bethlehem and have many children. Boaz then marries Ruth, and the Lord blesses them with a son. The women of the town say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, for he has not forgotten you and has not abandoned you. This son shall be a restorer of life and take care of you in old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, worth more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi embraces her grandson and cares for him. The women gather and name him Obed. This son became the father of Jesse, who fathers David, who becomes the king of Israel. This is where the book of Ruth ends. By the grace of God, this male white widow becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. beautiful happy ending to our at times very difficult story full of death and poverty and starvation um we have a beautiful ending to to finish it out um 
Let's go over some of this in a little more detail. Chapter four opens. Boaz goes to the city gate, right? He's got this this one last obstacle to take care of, this other family redeemer that that is in line before him. So he goes to the city gate, which is like the town hall. This is the place where like uh, business and legal issues would be settled. And he knew there he would find, he would find, you know, the right, he would find witnesses. He would find the right officials to like, legitimize this transaction. And uh, so that's where he meets this other family redeemer guy. This is where Boaz fills this guy in on the situation, tells him what happened to Naomi and the family and Ruth and the family. And, and like, this is the situation. We need somebody to redeem this land. And after he lets him know what's going on, this is what Boaz says in Ruth 4.4. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, dramatic pause. All right, I'll redeem it. Now, this might not be how you thought this whole thing was going to go down, especially after me spoiling it for you several times, video spoiling it, like, hey, Boaz and Ruth end up together. So what is, he's agreeing for this marriage to happen. So it's hard for me to say what this guy's motive is. We don't know much. We don't even know this guy's name. So it's hard for me to say what his motive is to agreeing to make this redemption happen. Um, Maybe he recognizes his duty as the family redeemer, and he just like considers that really important. Um, maybe he sees an opportunity to gain some land and wealth. Um, there's no indication that it's like malicious, that he's like trying to be a bad guy about it. But Boaz lets him know the catch in this transaction. You don't just get a bunch of free land. There's a little more going on here in the next verse. Then Boaz told him, of course, you should know this part. Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children with, uh, who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And then the, respo- the, the man responds into the next verse. Then I can't redeem it. I'm out. That's it. I'm out. Okay. And for those reasons, I'm out. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Just like that, he changes his mind. If this were like a movie, this would have had all kinds of suspenseful music. They would have dragged it out with like long, intense stares, and uh, you wouldn't know which way it's going to go, but it's, it's, a ver- it's the next verse in the Bible, and we quickly see him change his mind. This guy understands what he would be getting himself into. He knows that if he marries Ruth uh, and has kids with Ruth, those kids would have some inheritance. And he's concerned now that if I have this other set of children, what about my current children? Now am I going to have to divvy up my land and wealth? So it, like, it would complicate his estate, and it's not something that he's interested in. Um, so he declines. He declines redeeming this family and marrying Ruth. And he gives Boaz, the next family redeemer in line, his blessing. And he says, you know what? You're the next guy. You take care of this. I could tell you wanted to this whole time, um, so I'm going to let you do that. So do you, do you care to learn one more cultural custom <laughs> in, our, in our exploration of, of the ancient Near East several thousand years ago? Um, Ruth 4.7, this one's interesting. It says, now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. The pu- this publicly validated the transaction. This man took off his shoe and handed his shoe to Boaz, which just like picturing that scene is very bizarre. Um, and this is this cultural custom. We talked a lot about him last week, right? 
the week before too, gleaning and family redeemers and the, the marriage proposal thing with the cold feet, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, this one is a little different because even the time that the writer is recording the events of Ruth, right? Because Naomi did not write this book. Ruth did not write this book. It had happened a little bit later, probably just a generation or two, but long enough for this custom to stop being a thing. All the other things, they were like, yes, they were gleaning, right? Yes, they're the family redeemer, things that, they're, that the reader would understand. This one, they took the time to say, now this is a custom. And guys, I know it's super weird. He hands him his shoe. Isn't that dumb? And he takes the time to like explain what's going on here. And that says to even the person that he's writing for, like at the time he's writing, he has to explain this custom. It must, I don't know if it was short-lived or shortly after it stopped. Regardless, it makes it a little different from the other customs, which I find interesting. And maybe just, I find it interesting. But Remember that we are talking about Elimelech's estate. So like we're, Ruth and Naomi are a part of this transaction, um, which makes it sound yucky. And, and you know, the world has progressed and it certainly is different now. Um, but at the heart of this is a, a transfer of land. Um, I read some, uh, something about like the transfer of the sandal and, you know, experts aren't exactly sure, but um, they say the sandal might be a symbol of who has the right, the authority to walk on the land. So he's giving his shoe oh, as a way of saying, I won't step foot on that place. It's all yours. Um, what I don't know is if he gives the shoe back after or if he just walks home with one shoe. I don't know. Very confusing. Now, after this interaction between Boaz and this unnamed potential family redeemer. The book of Ruth comes to a rapid close <laughs> very quickly after this one event in chapter four. Uh, Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a baby together. It's all very wonderful. They live happy, happily ever after. Um, one interesting thing, I'm going to point out a bunch, but one of the interesting things that, about how the story ends, how this book of Ruth ends, is it's not just about Boaz and Ruth. Like Ruth is the namesake of the book, right? But the beginning, if you remember, the very first words about the book of Ruth are about Naomi, and Naomi's situation. So it focuses on Naomi. And there's a cool symmetry in the book of Ruth in that the beginning is Naomi-centric, and at the end, we come back to Naomi. At the end of the book, we check back in with this old widow we met at the beginning, right? Who was very, uh, she was grieving. She had a lot of, she was going through a lot of stuff. And at the end, we come back and we check in with her. So Ruth and Boaz have this baby together. And then in, in uh, Ruth 4.17, it says, the neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again. This is not Naomi's baby. Don't get confused. She's not trying to steal this baby or adopt this baby. She's taking care of her, of her um, grandson. Um, but the people, the neighbor women, saw the big picture. They saw Naomi holding a, a baby, and they saw this full circle moment where she started out this story with her sons and her husband, all, everybody in her life that she had loved, her family dying. And then now they see her with a baby boy in her hands again. They see her redeemed and restored. And that would have been quite a thing to see for these people. The, the, the people that are appreciating this whole moment that's happening in front of them. Her life was completely turned around in these four chapters. Remember in chapter one, where Naomi tried to change her name to Mara, which means bitterness. She tried to change her name to say, I am bitter. Um, she had been through so much. Her family was displaced. Her husband died. Two sons died. Uh, and the grief and the pain was just too much. It was overwhelming. It got to her. And she thought, this bitterness is all I have left. That's, what, that's like the, the pronouncement for herself was, all I have left in my life is bitterness. 
she thought it was over. She thought there was no hope left. Um, and you might remember me being kind of critical of her, of that perspective for, for, for Naomi. Not, not something a, uh, the people of God should be, you know, identifying themselves with, a place of no hope. And then, you know, she has this time. This is the culmination of Ruth's story. This is the turnaround, the real happy ending that God gave her. She started this book losing her family, and now it ends with her holding a baby boy again because God takes care of his people. I mentioned symmetry earlier. Um, it's probably a geometry turn, I guess, right? When, when things match each other, essentially. And this is something um, that we should always be looking for in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament is filled with history and also poetry, like things that actually happened. Um, and we have to realize that it was written in this beautiful, masterful way, especially like the book of Genesis, the way it 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 folds in on itself. It references itself. It's just a beautiful like piece of literature. Um, and it can be really hard to appreciate that when you don't know what you're looking for. So this is some things you should look for in the symmetry of the Bible. Lots of times you're going to see pairs of opposites, um, pairs of opposites to make a point. So think of like Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was like this hairy man's man. I say hairy, it sounds like I'm making fun of him. That is part of the Bible. Like it says he was a hairy guy. And his brother, Jacob, was just not. He was like not a guy of the outside and he preferred to like trickery. It's like a Loki and Thor situation. That might be a good um, uh, situation there to help you understand. So these pairs of opposites is a common thing in the Bible. Um, Timelines that represent each other to make a point. Um, Moses, for example, started in the palace and ended leading his people out of Egypt. Joseph ended in the palace leading his people into Egypt. Did I say all that right? (laughs) Do you you see what I'm saying? Like these stories, they parallel each other. they're, They're symmetrical, and it's really, really interesting when you know what you're looking for. All kinds of other stuff that your English teacher would be very excited about. And it's always to make a point. This stuff is not just in there because it's fun. It's in there to make a point, to show you something, to teach you something about God. In the book of Ruth, the beginning is marked with tragedy and loss. And in the end, we see this complete reversal where this family is restored. Naomi goes from emptiness to abundance. She has this complete transformation. She's earned her happy ending because God takes care of his people. We see another cool comparison with Ruth and Orpah, right? This pair that we see make Two, this is way back in chapter one, right? Naomi said, I'm going back to Bethlehem. Ruth and Orpah, my, my daughters-in-law of 10 years, you should just stay home. You should stay in your home of Moab. I'm gonna leave and go back to my homeland. Ruth chose to go with Naomi. Orpah chose to stay in Moab, right? Two people faced with the same proposition. They have every right to stay or go. I don't, it's not about obligation. It's about above and beyond. I don't, I'm not sure that Orpah is horribly wrong for going back to her home in Moab. I don't think she was obligated to go with with Naomi. But I think Ruth was going above and beyond by caring for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then we get this again with Boaz, right? Ruth and Orpah. Ruth chose to the, the, the most godly decision, take care of Naomi. And Orpah chose to go away. And now we have another pair with Boaz and this unnamed redeemer, right? Two people faced with the same proposition. Um, Both have every right to redeem or not. It's not about obligation. It's about above and beyond. I'm not sure that this guy, this unnamed redeemer, is a horrible person for not redeeming the land there and, and, and taking care of Naomi and Ruth. But I think that Boaz is going above and beyond 
by invoking the family redeemer role. And Ruth and Orpah, Boaz and this unnamed redeemer, and Boaz and Ruth both make the most godly, the most righteous decision. They have been coupled together this whole time. They've been um, just partners, and we're supposed to see them in the same way. They're the most godly people in this whole book. And it makes sense for this comparison to happen. To illustrate, when faced with a decision, the average person might just do the status quo. Godly people step up and go above and beyond. Ruth and Boaz both teach us that. One more theme I'd like us to see in in the book of Ruth. And it's something I've talked about every single week, um, but it's highlighted in chapter four in a very big way. And uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be where we park our conversation. The very first thing that I told you about Ruth was that she was a foreigner. I told you every week. I reminded you every week. This is the, the godly stuff she's doing is Israelite stuff. Moab is a crazy place of debauchery, unrighteousness, bad place where bad people come from. And Ruth is subverting expectations by being a foreigner from Moab, doing godly things, doing righteous things, doing the right thing. Ruth is from a place known for unrighteousness, but she rises above that. And she, she's committed to God and committed to a godly character. Boaz, he is an Israelite, but only halfway. That's right. Boaz is a mudblood. His father was an Israelite. So his mother married into the, the, the people of God. Um, his mother was actually a prostitute from Jericho named Rahab. And if you don't know about this lady, you might at least know about the walls of Jericho. Um, this is a classic Sunday school story. If you spent a lot of time in church, especially as a kid, you probably talked about this. Uh, and this is the Israelite army. They win this huge battle by walking around the city walls of Jericho. And then they yelled. God said, walk around the place and then holler a bunch. And they were like, okay. And then they did it and the walls came down and they won the battle of Jericho. Now, by listening to God's very bizarre battle plan, where trained soldiers are walking and yelling, um, they listened, and the walls did come down. But tucked into that story of military strategy and God's faithfulness, two Israelite spies, before they even began this, two Israelite spies went into the city of Jericho to scope things out, to scout out the situation, and they were harbored by a prostitute named Rahab, who is a foreigner, who was the lowest of the low in society with no respect, especially from godly people. This is, it was not a godly position to be in. She was a foreigner and a blatant sinner, but she recognized the power and faithfulness of the God of Israel. She chose her side. She chose the side of the God of Israel. And because of that, she was protected in the battle of Jericho. All of that to say, Boaz was the son of a foreigner. And I wonder if that informed the way he treated Ruth. I wonder if that was a part of why he respected her, why he saw her humanity, even though she was from outside of his people. Subverting expectations. It's been all over the book of Ruth. It happens over and over again here. Uh, and the book ends with a huge example of this. The book ends with some lineage uh, information, genealogy. And I've talked about the begats before, right? This person begat this person, begat this person. It can be challenging to read, but this one is short and it's nice. Um, and I'm just taking a piece from it even so it's even shorter. And we can learn a lot from the begats. We can learn a lot from these passages if we know what we're looking for. So Ruth 4, again, is always trying to make a point, trying to say something. In Ruth 4, 21 to 22, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz. We know that guy. Boaz was the father of Obed, Boaz and Ruth. 
the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. If you don't know much about the Bible, David was called a man after God's own heart. He was a influential, powerful king of Israel. Um, He wrote most, most of the Psalms, like he wrote much of our scripture. He was a hero of the faith. And especially for, for the contemporary readers, the people reading the book of Ruth as it was written, this would have stood out. And they would have said, Ruth, uh, uh, this whole book I've been surprised. This Moabite, this Moabite doing the right thing, this Israelite taking her in, she must be pretty awesome. She's in the lineage of King David, subverting expectations. That expands even more from our perspective, reading thousands of years later, because we know that not only is Ruth in the line of David, she's in the line of Jesus. And we believe Jesus is God incarnate. God stepped into creation. The savior of the universe has an ancestor that was an outsider. Faith in God has always been marked by welcoming the outsider. We've talked about it every week in this series. And this is where we're parking tonight because it's not just about Ruth and Rahab Rahab being outsiders. It's about us and how we see ourselves as outsiders sometimes. No matter how outside you feel, I want you to know that God loves you and he wants to be close to you and he wants you to let him use you. Jesus talked so much, lived subverting expectations. He did it all the time. At Christmas, we talk about how he was born in a manger. Right? And you'd think that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, would step into creation with some fanfare, right? Not so much. Jesus was born in a barn, and uh, the only fanfare was in heaven. He was born in a barn. He was uh, parents that nobody knew in a town that nobody cared about. That's how our God stepped into creation. Subverted expectations. We talk about his teaching. He taught all kinds of stuff. And over and over again, he was saying things that were, he was taking things that people thought and, and really thought they knew and believed in and turning it upside down. Especially the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the time, they thought they understood God and, and faith and everything. And Jesus was like, you guys have this totally backwards. He was constantly subverting expectations. We were talking about this at our young adults group and Dave O brought up the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is such a perfect example of this. This is a story that Jesus told to make this exact point in Luke 10. Um, A man is mugged and left for dead in the street and two different people that were supposed to be godly and upright people, people connected to the church, supposed to be connected to God, passed him by. They saw him in his need and they kept walking. Pastors, church leaders, they left him there. And then a man from Samaria, which was the Moab of Jesus's time, the place where there was no good, nobody good came from there. A Samaritan saw him in his need and stopped to take care of him. He got him to a hospital. He paid for his time and his care. He did the right thing. And he made sure that this um, person in need was taken care of. It was actually where the, the, the phrase good Samaritan comes from is, is this parable. And this parable was an assault to expectations. Someone from Samaria would not have been expected to do this, but Jesus subverted expectations. Then on Easter, we talk about his death. Um, When people thought, this guy that's coming, he's the savior, the Messiah, the one that's going to save us, they were expecting like a military coup. They were expecting him to empower, like rise above the oppressive government. That's what they expected from Jesus. Instead, He kept talking about love. He was a hippie. And serving people. 
and how he was going to die. He said, I'm going to die. That's the leader that we're following? And then he died. (laughs) He did that. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was beaten and crucified. He died on a cross. And as far as expectations for death, like pretty much just like dead, stays dead. Like that's the main expectation for death. And even that, Jesus completely flipped upside down. We believe that he died on the cross and came back to life three days later. Subverted expectations about that. There were witnesses. People saw this and wrote it down. That's why we believe Jesus really died and really came back to life. Jesus made a habit of subverting people's expectations. And this is important to us, to you and me, because it means that what I think about myself and my limitations is not what's important. It doesn't matter if I think I'm the worst, if I think I'm unlovable, too far gone, too unchurched, too churched, too outside, too inside, too unredeemable. None of that is what matters. What I think about myself does not impact what God thinks about me. It does not impact how God can use me. The only thing that matters is what God sees in me. When I let him into my whole life, I am healthy, I am whole, I am taken care of because God takes care of his people. And God can use me when I let him use me. He can use me when I give him everything. In fact, he loves using imperfect people. He only uses imperfect people to do his work. This is how he's always done it. Jesus is the one exception when God stepped into creation. Every other time God's done anything on earth, it was through an imperfect person. And we get to join that line of imperfect people used by God. If we give ourselves to him. You are not unredeemable. You are not too far gone. You are not too outside. Don't limit God like that. You're not that special. If you think you're too bad to be used by God, ask yourself what you're saying about God and the people he he can use. So believe what God says about himself. Believe what God says about you. Because no matter how many times you mess up, no matter where you come from or where you've been, God does his work through imperfect people. And God takes care of his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, for these great four weeks in your word in the book of Ruth. Thank you so much for what you're teaching us through it. That you're teaching us not to identify with our bitterness and our, our tragedy, but to identify with hope in you. You've taught us so much about taking care of the outsider, taking care uh, of people around us, that true religion is reaching out to the rejected. You've taught us so much about redemption, about taking care of people, because God's people take care of people who don't have people. And so God, tonight I ask that you would help us to submit our lives entirely to you to believe what you say about yourself and what you say about us, that you can use us no matter where we've been or what we've done. There is nothing too bad. There's nowhere, no one too far gone to be used by you. So for the people in the room that are thinking, somebody who grew up in church will take care of that. Somebody whose parents are ministry leaders will take care of that. Somebody who's been here longer will take care of that. God, I ask you to speak to those people directly and remind them, that you use imperfect people to do your work all the time. You've used me, an imperfect person, to do your work. And I thank you that you partner with us to do your work. We love you. We thank you. In your precious name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to this Apex Student Podcast. You can listen to more Apex teachings by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We pray that this message has impacted your life and that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. 